Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. This week, we will continue our exploration of the first of three Johannine letters as we turn to chapter three of 1 John. As we mentioned last week, the occasion for all three Johannine letters is the outbreak of conflict and skiism within a network of churches. One could say that the letters are products of a church in crisis and could be examined for what they reveal about the dynamic of a church in conflict. While the particulars of the arguments are unknown, at the heart of the matter may be a doctrinal dispute, a disagreement over something so serious that all three letters are prepared to claim that those who have the wrong teaching do not have God. To combat the source of the division, the author of 1 John urges his readers to remember their unique relationship with God, a relationship worked out in a reciprocal way. The readers abide in God or Christ, and Christ abides in them. But most of all, the author of 1 John wants his readers to realize how much God loves them. In the words of St. Augustine of Hippo in his prologue to a collection of sermons he composed on 1 John, quote, now let us listen to John and let us address his words as the Lord prompts so that you too may have a good understanding of them for yourselves. Today's reading is from 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. We have those rare moments from time to time when we are given to think about our lives, to reflect on what has become of us, and what might become of us even still. They are rare moments, not because the opportunities for them are somehow scarce or even fleeting, but because rarely do we slow down long enough to welcome their arrival and to lean into them, to quiet the world's distracting soundtracks that play over and over in our minds and the unrelenting click tracks that drive the drumbeat of our daily lives. But it does happen every so often, that rare moment when you step back and ask yourself, where have I been? Where am I now? Where am I going? Maybe it happens while you are lying in bed waiting for sleep to finally come. Maybe it happens while standing knee-deep in a high country stream, casting flies into a shallow rifle. Maybe it happens while you're 
watching the sun set slowly on another day or while watching your infant child quietly breathe in and out while napping on your chest or while you're driving along a desert highway under the shadowy light of early dawn. Wherever, whenever it might happen, when that moment does finally come to you and you are given to reflect on your life, do you find yourself mostly looking back, ruminating on your past? Or do you mostly find yourself looking forward, imagining your future? How you answer that question can make all the difference in your life and all the difference in the world. We humans are called homo sapiens, which means, of course, the wise man. But what actually makes us wise? What sets us apart from all other animals? Is it our capacity for complex language or for making tools? Is it our ability to cooperate with others or to reason and to make meaning out of our lives? Some say so, and so perhaps. But what truly distinguishes our species from others is an ability that scientists today are now just beginning to appreciate. We, unlike all other creatures, have the capacity to contemplate the future. We can imagine what tomorrow might bring and all the tomorrows after that. And it's this foresight that has made it possible to create and sustain human civilization. It's what got us to the moon and back. It's what has driven us to develop vaccines for an unknown deadly virus in less than a year. It's what motivates us to contribute to 401k plans, to purchase life insurance, to imagine as a child what we want to be when we grow up. Contemplating our future can lift our spirits and motivate us toward achieving extraordinary goals. But it can also be a source of depression and anxiety, whether we're evaluating our own lives or worrying about the state of the world. Sometimes we overlay the narratives of our past onto the possibilities for our future. And we can't imagine a tomorrow that could be any different from today. But scientists tell us that humans aren't built to spend a whole lot of time thinking about the past. Study after study suggests that when we're contemplating the future and planning for it, we actually report higher levels of happiness and lower levels of stress and anxiety than when we're ruminating on the past. Thinking about what is yet to come, even despite the uncertainty of the future, is still better for us than thinking about what has already been. And at the heart of the Christian faith is this notion that to truly live in the moment, to be truly at peace in the here and now, is to believe with confidence that God is leading us, luring us into a generous and even more perfect future. We are a work in progress. God is perfecting us over time. John the Elder in our passage today puts it this way. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this 
hope in him, purify themselves, just as he is pure. John, as we've seen, is writing to a network of early Christians in Ephesus who are deeply divided. Things have spiraled out of control. They're at each other's throats over differences of doctrine and practice. Their little community is splitting apart at the seams over some undisclosed controversy. Accusations are flying. Many people have left the church, and those who have chosen to remain are desperately trying to hold on to what they once had. Maybe you've noticed this often happens in churches. It happens in denominations. It's happening in our own denomination, this painful and prolonged breakup between Christians over the issue of whether sexual orientation and identity should be a factor in determining who shall be included in the church and who shall be excluded. And some are leaving because the church is too inclusive, others because the church is too exclusive. Meanwhile, a whole group of people in the middle are desperately trying to hold things together. How? Well, John the Elder has a word for us, just as he had a word for those early Christians in Ephesus. He reminds them that they are God's children, every last one of them. And as such, they should act like God's children. What does that mean? When I was a child, I would spend a lot of my summer vacations camping with my grandparents. I was a little on the hyper side as a kid, so whenever my grandmother would take me out in public somewhere, she would always say the same thing. She'd first give me the hairy eyeball, like only a grandmother named Velma can do. And then she'd say to me, Mark, you're a Feldmeyer. Act like a Feldmeyer. And I somehow knew what she meant by this. And if those early Christians didn't know what it meant to act like children of God, John the Elder reminds them, as we saw last week, he said, by this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as Jesus walked. And so to be a child of God is to walk as Jesus walked. And how Jesus walked is, as we saw last week, summed up in the one and only commandment that Jesus gave his disciples. In the Gospel of John, he says, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. This is what it means to be a child of God, to love one another in the same way that Jesus loved. John the Elder says that right now you are children of God. He says, look around, you can see it in the way you love one another. The love that you practice for one another is so very real and even raw. It's not some fuzzy, feel-good sensation kind of love. It's not worldly love. Worldly love is, I'll love you if you love me back kind of love. Worldly love says, I'll love you if I get something out of it kind of love. Worldly love says, I'll, I'll love you until I finally had it up to here with you. But with Jesus' love, divine love, there are times when it doesn't feel good at all. Sometimes people will say and do things that hurt you and disappoint you and make you absolutely lose your, what do you call that little Asian toy dog breed from Tibet? A Shih Tzu? 
Well, sometimes people will make you lose your shih tzu. It happens. But Jesus' love doesn't let you run away with the shih tzu. Jesus' love, divine love, finds a way to endure. So hold on, writes John. I know it's hard, but remember, you are children of God right now. And if you continue to practice this Jesus love long enough, he says, just imagine what you'll be someday. You will go from acting like Jesus acted to becoming just like him. He writes, we are children of God now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Can I ask you again, when you think about your life, what has become of you, what shall become of you, do you spend more time ruminating on what has happened in the past? Your grievances, your traumas, your regrets, your disappointments? Or do you spend your time thinking about the future? Living with this hope, as John calls it, that someday you will actually be like Jesus. God is leading us and luring us into a a generous future in which we, we are perfected or matured over time. Perfected by the grace of God until finally we wake up someday and we look like Jesus. And to live with this hope every day is to purify ourselves of all worldly ways of loving and living. John's message couldn't be more relevant for us today. We are swimming in a sea of division in our world. Our country is divided, our denomination is divided, neighborhoods, families, even our own hearts and minds are divided. How do we live with this hope that by walking through the world the way Jesus walked, eventually we will become like him? Well, this passage from 1 John and the very life of Jesus himself gives us two clues on how to do that. The first clue is, is to live with the end in mind. If Jesus is the divine blueprint for who we are becoming, we start with the very person of Jesus and we ask ourselves, what was he like that we might want to become like him? I once read an interview with the great novelist John Irving Irving wrote The World According to Garp and, and one of my favorites, A Prayer for Owen Meany. Irving was asked about his process. How do you even begin to write a novel? And Irving said that the best way to begin a novel is with the end. He said that he never begins writing a novel until he has decided on how it will end. He said, I always start with the last sentence. I know exactly where I'm going. In the five, six, seven years it takes me to write a book, I always know the ending first, and I don't start writing until I know the last sentence. You need to know, he says, the ending to understand the tone and the language to use. 
You need to know how to set everything up to get where you're going. John the Elder gives us this ending. You will someday be like him. How do you want to get there? Jesus began his ministry with the end in mind. His first act of public ministry was to call 12 people to be his disciples and friends. They were far from perfect people. They were a work in progress. They argued with each other constantly. They rarely understood what Jesus was saying or doing. They considered walking away and going back to fishing or tax collecting on many occasions. They even abandoned him at his crucifixion. But that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus, as you recall, meets up with them later in his resurrection and tells them, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Jesus knew that he would need them. He knew that they would need him. And his whole ministry began by finding them, and his whole legacy depended on keeping them. What John the Elder is telling us in our passage, and what Jesus modeled for us in his life, is this very simple truth. We cannot become like Jesus in the end without bringing Jesus' people along with us. And so we ask ourselves, who do we want to bring with us? It's not finding friends that is the challenge in life. It's keeping them. Poet David White writes about this on friendship. He says, the dynamic of friendship is almost always underestimated as a constant force in human life. A diminishing circle of friends is the first terrible diagnostic of a life in deep trouble, of overwork, of too much emphasis on professional identity, of forgetting who will be there when our armored personalities run into the inevitable natural disasters and vulnerabilities found in even the most average existence. We begin with the end in mind, who do we want to take with us? And because they, like us, are works in progress, the second clue to becoming like Christ is to accept hardship in our relationships as a pathway to perfection and peace. To become like Jesus is to experience betrayal, disappointment, rejection, and even humiliation, often at the hands of those you love the most. And yet to, ex- to accept it was, for Jesus, the pathway to peace and the perfection of his soul. I have heard it so often over the years, someone will tell me, when that experience happened to me, that breakup, that disappointment, that betrayal, I thought it was the end of the world. I couldn't believe someone could do that to me or that I'd ever recover from it. I never imagined I could grow from it, but slowly I worked on myself. I forgave, I healed, and I can see now that something good actually came out of it. It happens. 
Do you remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis? Sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, left for dead, enduring years of suffering and hardship and imprisonment and abuse. And yet, in the end, Joseph eventually rose up to become the second most powerful man in Egypt. And years later, when he comes face to face with those rotten brothers who were responsible for so much of his suffering, what does Joseph say? He says, what you did to me was wrong. There's no sugarcoating it. It was the worst thing imaginable. You meant it for evil. But God found a way to make what you did to me into something good. The worst of our struggles, even in our relationships, often create the conditions by which we become like Jesus. Years ago, I took Lori out for dinner to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. We went to a local restaurant in San Diego, and I ordered oysters on the half shell. At the time, I really didn't even like oysters, but they had a special, and the guy at the table next to ours said, you should try them, and so succumbing to the peer pressure, I ordered two. They came delicately arranged on a platter of shaved ice and garnish. These two gooey, slimy bivalves on a little plate. I scooped one of them out and into my mouth and began to chew with determination, pretending to enjoy it, until I felt a sudden unsettling crunch between my back teeth. I immediately assumed that I had just broken a tooth, and so I instinctively reached in, but what I, what I pulled out was completely unexpected. There, between my fingers, was a generous translucent pearl which turned out to be a timely and inexpensive anniversary gift, by the way. A pearl, of course, is created when a minuscule foreign object becomes trapped within the the shellfish. And in self-defense, the mollusk protects itself by encasing that object in a small sack of calcium carbonate. And over time, that hardens, and over time, it adds layer upon layer to the white little orb until it becomes what we know as a pearl. Out of this hardship, out of what seems to be the greatest threat to that mollusk's very existence, a pearl is produced. Relationships are hard. Living as a child of God in community and loving the way Jesus loved is hard. Not all relationships can endure those hardships, but Some can. And such hardships often create the conditions by which something new and surprising is made possible in you. These can be the pathway to peace and the pathway to perfection within. Novelist Alice Walker writes about this discomfort of growth. She says, some periods of our growth are so confusing that we don't even recognize that growth is happening. We may feel hostile or angry or weepy and hysterical, or we may feel depressed. It it would never occur to us that we were, in fact, in the process of change, of actually becoming larger than we were. She goes on to say, whenever we grow, we tend to feel it. 
as a young seed must feel the weight and inertia of the earth as it seeks to break out of its shell on its way to becoming a plant. Often the feeling is anything but pleasant. But what is most unpleasant is the not knowing what is happening. Those long periods when something inside ourselves seems to be waiting, holding its breath, unsure about what the next step should be. For it is in those periods that we realize that we are being prepared for the next phase of life and that in all probability, a new level of the personality is about to be revealed. It sounds a lot like what John the Elder is saying. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. But we do know this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. Our takeaways for today. God is luring us into a generous future in which we shall become like Jesus. We become like Jesus by bringing Jesus' people along with us. Hidden in every hardship is a pathway to perfection and peace.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.